0: Hello and welcome to the New Books in History podcast. My name is Christine Lamberson and I'll be your host today. Today I'll be speaking with Kenna Archer, who is a professor here at Angelo State University. And we'll be talking about her new book, Unruly Waters, A Social and Environmental History of the Brazos River, which came out in 2015 from the University of New Mexico Press. And this book has just recently been uh, awarded as a finalist or announced as a finalist for the 2016 Spur Award from the Western Writers of America. So congratulations on that, Kenna, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: So I thought we'd start out by talking a little bit about you, who you are, and where you're from, where you went to school, and how you got interested in history. Okay, well, as you
1: said, I'm Dr. Kenna Archer. I work as an instructor at Angelo State University. I grew up in Texas, so I've not traveled far. Um, I earned my undergraduate degree and my master's degree at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and I have sort of an unusual background academically um, at Baylor. I pursued environmental science um, at the same time. That I pursued degrees in history, and my master's degree from Baylor is actually in environmental science as well. At that point, though, I pursued a Ph.D. in environmental history, American history, at Texas Tech University in Lubbock. And now I have settled here in San Angelo. And to be honest, um, again, this is sort of unusual for a historian, but I first got the idea for my book, On the Brazos River, when I was doing fieldwork um, for my master's degree in environmental science, I was crawling on my knees, literally, um, through some limestone outcroppings along the Brazos River, counting saplings and uh, doing other vegetative studies for my thesis. When I realized I had no broad context <laughs> for understanding any of the scientific data, I had no understanding of how the river had changed, um, and so. My appreciation for the browsers actually far predates um, my work as a historian. It goes all the way back to my time as a scientist, but that is who I am. Um, And like I said, it's an honor to be here.
0: Wonderful. So you've started to answer this question a little bit, but I'm curious about how you got into writing this book. So you were studying the Brazos River as a scientist, and how did that lead you to think that, you know, maybe I should be a historian instead? That's a great question. And to be
1: honest, it was my advisor, Dr. Susan Bratton, in the Department of Environmental Science at Baylor, who first floated the idea to me um, that perhaps a history of the area would be helpful. And that's because I was doing a number of different scientific studies for my master's thesis. I was basically writing a land management history of a park, Cameron Park, in Waco, Texas, which is right along the Brazos. And as I said, I was doing studies where I counted saplings and seedlings in the park. I was doing studies where I cored trees to get an understanding of how old they were. And I did what is called vegetative mapping. Where I walked through this park and just tried to figure out what had been there. And in my walks I found, and I, I mapped it ultimately, I found evidence that there had been houses at least 100 years ago in the park. And I didn't know what those houses meant. I, I found some barbed wire fences as well that suggested maybe there had been cattle pastures. In this park at some point, and I had no way to find out the history of this park because no one had ever studied it. And so I thought maybe I can find histories of the Brazos River, and I couldn't find histories of the Brazos River even. And I began talking with my advisor, and we realized that I could present a scientific profile of this park. I could present a scientific profile of the Brazos River, but I I really had no meaningful way to contextualize that data. I didn't know the historic forces that had shaped the landscape. I only knew the scientific and ecological forces. And we really began to toss around the idea that someday somebody needed to write a history of this river. Fast forward two years, um, I have finished my master's project, and I was talking with my advisor, Susan, again, and we really... Uh, We're talking about the fact that I enjoyed the history more than the science anyway. That was the point when I decided environmental history um, would be my Ph.D. over some of the other areas. And as I worked on my Ph.D., to be honest, I also appreciated the, well, pragmatically we'll call it the ease um, of working on a subject I knew already. But I enjoyed as well and knew there was significance to this history, of the river. If nothing else, it was a, a history I um, would have appreciated having. And in fact, since I've written this book um, and since I wrote my PhD dissertation, which was also on the Brazos, it's, there have been numerous students from the Waco area who have contacted me saying, hey, I need a history on the Brazos River. Thank you for writing this, um, which was gratifying, obviously.
0: Yeah, so that's great. So you clearly are filling a need. For- within the area and within or among people who are thinking about the Brazos River. But in your book, you of course talk a little bit about why this river is important to think about from a national perspective or from a historical perspective outside of people who are, are thinking about the river from a local perspective, right? Which isn't to say that isn't important. Of course it is, but I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what's interesting about the Brazos River River, in your introduction, you mentioned this is not the Mississippi. You know, it's a river that probably lots of people outside of Texas don't know that much about. But why is it important to study or what's really interesting and unique about it? No, that's a great point. Because
1: I certainly had some questions, even from mentors and advisors at Texas Tech. and, And Lubbock is in Texas. Lubbock sits within the watershed, actually, of the Brazos River, and even those individuals questioned why the Brazos. This is not a significant river. This is not a river that most Americans will know you're limiting yourself to very small subjects. But I think there are several things that the Brazos can teach us nationally, and I think you're right. It's it's not just a locally important subject. For one thing, the literature of environmental history, at least those historians that look at rivers, like Donald Worcester and Mark Reisner or uh, Richard White, oftentimes you see in their studies, and they are very, very good studies. I, I've referenced them extensively. But often you see in these stories um, a tale of technocratic or riparian <coughs> progress. It's the story of dams being built and dams being sort of built profusely along rivers, and rivers really sort of dying somewhat ecologically as a result. And all those things are true. But developers really struggled on the Brazos River to bring any semblance of development. And so I think that Brazos is a very, very good subject on a national scale because it shows very clearly how hard the process of development can be. Other rivers show that as well certainly, but this river de Brazos gave me an opportunity to complicate how we treat rivers in the literature to say, hey, it's not just progress. There are important moments of inertia and really of backwards um, movement where you're watching projects that have been built literally crumble because there were projects that just literally washed away on the Brazos. So I think that's one point of importance nationally that the Brazos complicates how we view rivers it's not just a story of rapid development Um, it's something more complicated than that a second and related point of importance I think is that the Brazos speaks to a broader commentary on the limitations of technocracy and that's not limited to rivers Um, certainly you know this but Americans have long been marked by this faith in technology. We think we can conquer rivers with dams and with mills and with canals. We think we can move west and conquer ye lands with the steel plow and barbed wire. There's just been this fascination with technological progress and with technological solutions to environmental issues in the United States. And that is certainly true on rivers where we think canals will solve our problems, and then we think dams will solve our problems, and then we think diversion and importation projects will solve our problems. And the Brazos really speaks to the limitations of technology as a solution to cultural expectations, as a solution to geologic problems um, in the case of the Brazos River. And so, again, there are many other rivers and many other Subjects that point to the limitations of technocracy, but because the Brazos was so difficult to develop and because people tried for almost 200 years uh, without a lot of success to develop it, you see more clearly here the limitations of technological solutions than I think you sometimes see on other rivers. The Columbia River, for example, is dammed so extensively that it's difficult even visually to look at that river and think, oh, technology failed. Um, but the Brazos, where there's only a handful of dams, um, it's, it's easier even just visually to look out and say, oh, okay, there are limits to what we can do, even in this highly modernizing, highly um, innovative world of technology. And then actually a third point. I'm going to
0: talk your ear off, as it were. No, that's but
1: fine. I think there's third a third and final really important point of significance, and this is perhaps not as big of a deal nationally, but it's certainly something that's important for Texas historians and for really historians of the West and the South. There has long been a debate among Western historians and Southern historians, and in particular, Texas historians, about just what exactly Texas is. Is Texas the South? Is it a place of Old South and develop ideals of culture, you know, of cotton culture and slavery and the various other things that have been wrapped up in Southern history? Or is it the West? Is it a place of cattle and sort of westward expansion mindednesses of Plains Indians and sort of technological innovations rapidly changing the landscape like the railroads? There's just been this debate that has marked Texas, and the reality is most people have decided Texas is neither. Texas is not a place that is strictly south or west or north or southwest. It's sort of this mix of cultural and geographical and geological ideals. And I think the Brazos is much the same. The Brazos begins in West Texas in canyon lands where plains people um, have been a very prominent force for a long time. It flows through, however, the Gulf Coast, where the cotton culture of the South had been very, very forcibly put into place. There are abandoned plantations and fields all along the southern reaches of the Brazos. And so in a sense, I think the Brazos speaks to this larger conflict over Texas, over South versus West. And this is very ambitious for me to say, but I think in a limited way, the Brazos is a bridge between historiographies. Um, a bridge between south and west, because it is both. I, I think in my book I call it a western river with a southern ending. And I think that that historiographical connection that the Brazos can make is unique. Most rivers aren't long enough and aren't geographically situated in a way where they can bridge such distinct geographies and such distinct sort of regional identities. So I think that's a very important element as well.
0: Okay, great. So you have a really rich topic. It does all of these exciting things and kind of provides us with lessons about, uh, the nation and technology as well as regional character. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, this idea of, of failure or limitations, uh, in part because thinking about failure is something that we talk a lot about in society as, outside of history, right? Thinking about how we learn from failures and how business success comes out of failures and things like that are often uh, kind of popular. So I'm wondering how, when you look at the failures that there were of development, how did those failures influence future river development projects, both in the case of the Brazos itself, or how did those become lessons for this kind of, uh, technological development, this technological approach to rivers in general, were there lessons learned from the Brazos, or is there just kind of plugging forward and trying to try again? I think it's really a combination
1: where you see that developers along the Brazos and other rivers have certainly learned from their failures and from what you might call their impartial successes. But I think you can also see along the Brazos a very clear dedication to just moving forward and moving forward. And part of that is because as you move from, for example, the 1830s, in the 1840s is when Texans first start talking about improving the Brazos River. Um, many historians know this, that settlement by American immigrants in Texas really begins within the Brazos watershed with Stephen F. Austin, his old 300, and expands upstream along the Brazos and over to the Colorado. This was a really fertile region in Texas. And so I think you can see here from the beginning these ideas about let's develop this river, let's harness it for our good uses. And as you move into the early 1900s and then the mid-1900s and then even the late 1900s, 20th century, you definitely see this idea of we're going to keep plugging despite our failures because the technology has improved so much, we now have concrete, we now have steel, we now have the capability of transnational diversion projects bringing water through deserts. Because the technology has improved, it is reasonable for us to keep plugging and expect different results. And so there is definitely that element of maybe overlooking ineffective projects in the past because you believe it's reasonable to do so. But there certainly have been lessons learned as well. Um, For example, there was a lock and dam project that I talk about extensively in my book that was proposed for the Brazos River in the 1910s. And it was modeled in a lot of ways on the lock and dam projects of rivers like the Mississippi. This is definitely still an era when you see that sort of southern influence of navigation and lock building. And with the locks and dams on the Brazos, they proposed eight initially, Um, they started construction on four. They only completed construction on two. And I think that is evidence of lessons learned because the two that they constructed were never very effective. It never provided the consistent stream flow that would have been necessary for navigation to take place year-round on this river. These two locks and dams as well, they collapsed during construction multiple times because of floods. Um, there were other times, however, when workers and people who are managing um, these locks and dams at other times, but workers building the dams, wrote back to their superiors in the Army Corps of Engineers and said, hey, there's only two inches of water in this lock and dam structure. There's nothing we can do with the river. And so the fact that they only partially constructed these locks and dams, I think, is testament to the fact that they recognized, hey, this project is not suited for the expectations we have. The, the geological reality <laughs> is that the soils cannot support these structures. And so I definitely think, specific to the Brazos, you see both maybe an unfettered hope, <laughs> an unrealistic hope, that we can keep plugging, 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 and it's not insanity. <laughs> it's reasonable to expect different results. But you can also see, yeah, we are learning. The locks and dams aren't going to work. Let's try something else and then they try dams and they figure out eventually well there are problems with these dams and they propose yet another set of projects perhaps what they really don't ever learn is that there are geological realities that have to shape expectations and when you don't allow the geological realities to shape the expectations that is when you have total failure and that is perhaps the lesson that has been hardest to learn because you see continually that these projects just aren't well-suited to what the Brazos River landscape can absorb, can do, um, can be shaped to, et cetera.
0: Interesting. So you, you've you kind of start, started to talk about the geologic aspects of this river. And, of course, since you're coming from a science background, probably more than many a historian, you're particularly well-suited to talk about why is the Brazos River so difficult? What makes it unique or special, or why were these projects so consistently hard to at least achieve the type of success that they wanted? No, that's a great
1: question, and this is an oversimplification, admittedly, but you can sort of summarize the scientific problem in this sense. Nebraska is very, very flood-prone along its entire length because the entire state of Texas floats towards the Gulf Coast. You have these canyon lands in the western half of the state, right? And then you have these very shallow sort of coastal plains uh, along the Gulf Coast line. And so the whole state floats. And so what you see with the Brazos River is that on its lower half, it is very, very flat. There are a lot of sort of marshy wetlands. And the soils, they shrink and swell a lot um, when they get wet. They're very unstable, and so, this is the area. Um, certainly, in Louisiana, and Mississippi, you see this similar sort of thing, and in other Texas rivers near the coast, where the Brazos changes course um, with time, it will isolate oxbow lakes, right? Where it changes course and leaves a little fragment of itself behind. You will see banks caving in um, after floods because the soils are just so unstable um, that they collapse easily. And so, in that case, flooding is an issue. But because the soils are unstable, you don't have a strong, um, subsoil like, like a cannibal. You don't have any sort of hard limestone or canyon walls to ground any sort of dam structure, even to ground a small structure. Whereas along the upper half of the river, you have these nice hard limestone cliffs and you have these strong sort of subsoils beneath that. The soil, the soils are far, far more stable. But for aren't as much of an issue. This is a place of drought and aridity. And so the issue really with the Brazos is that where it is most flood-prone, along its bottom half, the soils are unstable. They're very waterlogged. And so you can't build the structures you need to protect against floods. Where the soils are stronger and capable of supporting dam structures and flood control structures, flooding is not as much of an issue. So that that's sort of the simplistic answer. Um, but the reality is that if you were only to look at the bottom half of the river um, and only to look at navigation, there would be fewer problems um, with the geology. Um, it, it's the fact that you have this river in its entirety, that it's almost 1,200 miles long, um, and that it courses through so many distinct regions. The Texans and, and nationally um, governmental representatives are just going to struggle to find a coherent plan for all of it. So I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but basically, you can have different soils in different areas. Floodplain soils, um, perhaps you know this, are very, very rich. That's where you find a lot of farming along rivers, right? But they're not stable, and so that's the bottom half of the river. Um, and then up on the northern half, you don't have as many floodplain soils. You have limestone and you have nice subsoils that are very hard and you can anchor gigantic Hoover Dam-like structures into them. But there's not a lot of rain, so you don't have the floods that, you know, people need protecting from downstream. Okay.
0: So you have talked a little bit about the the lock and dam projects, but I was wondering if you might pick perhaps your favorite or one, one of the most interesting stories of the Uh, development projects that people made an attempt to do whether they failed or succeeded or somewhere in between and, and talk about that just to give our listeners kind of a taste of what kind of things people were trying to do with this river.
1: That is such a difficult question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think I would point you to what is basically the only chapter in my book that looks at the river as a whole Um, Most of the chapters look at the lower Brazos River only because there are some thematically important connections there in the types of projects that were proposed. And then I looked at the middle Brazos and then the upper Brazos. But one of the final chapters looks at projects in the 1960s and 1970s that were proposed for the Brazos River at large. This is really the first time, you know, ecology is a huge thing. The environmental movement is exploding and sort of influencing thought. And so you begin to see people treating the Brazos as sort of a coherent, holistic whole in the second half of the 1900s. And none of these projects were ever completed. They're all entirely theoretical. But I think you really see the sense of desperation that people have with regards to developing the Brazos River in these projects that I'm about to tell you um, about. And I think you see as well this sort of technocratic impulse, just how wild it could get. And so here are my favorite projects. In the 1950s and 1970s, and the very tail end of the 1950s, you're going to see some politicians and then just some everyday like lay people proposing projects for the Brazos River that include diversion and importation schemes meaning there's not enough water in the Brazos River for the needs that we have. And so we should bring water from places of feast to the Brazos, which is a place of famine. And that's sort of the general idea. Take it from places that don't need their water, they have too much, and bring it to the Brazos because we need more. At this point, the Brazos has been dammed somewhat. Floods aren't as much of an issue You have cities growing, there's greater pressure on water resources, and there's just this idea we need to be thinking towards the future when we won't have enough water. And so they proposed these um, importation and diversion schemes, and they were proposing to bring water from places like the Sabine River and the Trinity River in Texas, which seems reasonable, but some of these diversion schemes proposed to funnel or siphon off water from the Mississippi River, which is fairly far away from the Arkansas and the Missouri rivers. Again, fairly, fairly far away. That's quite a distance to travel um, to bring water from one site to another. But some of these diversion schemes propose to import water from Canada all the <laughs> way to the Bahamas River, um, which looking back with hindsight, you have to wonder how that would even have worked practically. And another set of diversion projects proposed to import water from California, from Southern California, over to the Brazos River. And again, you just sort of, with hindsight, you look back and you go, what? <laughs> and that would have involved funneling water in pipelines and open concrete line channels through the Mojave Desert, through Arizona, through New Mexico where people would have been sitting there, you know, open mouth wondering what the what, you know, why, why are we not hitting this water? Um, but you would have had to divert it through Southern California, through the Mojave, through Arizona, through New Mexico, through very arid West Texas, and then finally into the Brazos River, again, through a series of pipelines, and then also through concrete-lined open ditches. And I think these importation and diversion schemes, some of which attracted a lot of attention, um, Water Inc., for example, is an organization that um, politician George Mahon worked with extensively, so that was a very legitimate project. Operation Southwest was a nationally relevant project that attracted a lot of attention. And then some projects, like importing water transnationally from Canada or all the way from California receives less attention. But again, I think you can see the willingness that Texans and Americans have to turn to technology um, for a perceived problem and perhaps their unwillingness to reconcile their expectations with the realities of how much water the Brazos River can give and in what way it can give those waters to people that need it. Oh, you know, I am going to add one more project that I particularly enjoyed. It has nothing to do with importation. It is the same time period, though. Um, you also had, this is not a private individual, so this was not a company, this is not a government agency, but you had at least one private individual as well who advocated nuclear technology. Um, this was the atomic era, the beginning of the atomic era in the late 1950s, early 1960s, and... His idea was that you could use nuclear bombs to blast reservoirs along the Brazos River, thus speeding up the pace of development as well. So, again, the idea that we would use nuclear bombs um, to blast giant craters into the watershed and speed up development is, with hindsight, something that leaves people shaking their head or chuckling or wondering what we were thinking. But it just, again, it really speaks to that sort of technocratic impulse to this Faith that technology can solve our problems and to an unwillingness, uh, perhaps, to learn from our past mistakes.
0: Those are great stories and definitely highlight <laughs> uh, a pretty serious faith, maybe blind faith in uh, the power of technology and, and our ability to control the environment. Um, So seeing as those sorts of themes are things that we talk a lot about today, uh, I'm wondering if I might be able to ask you a more present question. Your book ends in 1980, but is there a way in which we see people learning more about the limitations of, of, you know, the... Technology, learning about our limitations of our ability to control the environment, especially if we think about today, you know, the extent to which water in particular is a really important political, environmental kind of, you know, existential issue in America and other places. Do we see any sort of reconciling with this kind of limitation, any sort of change in approach as you get towards the end of the 20th century? Absolutely.
1: And I ended my study in 1980 because at least within the Brazos, and this is actually largely true on many other American rivers as well, but specifically with the Brazos, you do not see any large projects proposed and then constructed along the Brazos after 1980. There are a few dam projects that are constructed after 1980, but they are all projects that have been put in motion you know, 10 years earlier in the early 1970s, for example. And so I do think that in the 1980s and then into the turn of the 20th century into the 21st, that you do begin to see sort of a growing awareness of the limitations of this type of riparian development. And a great example, uh, a couple of examples. Um, first off, you have all of the press that has come with uh, T. Boone Pickens, right, who is now buying up water rights. Um, instead of focusing as much on oil as he had done before. And that, I think, has gotten a lot of people talking about sort of the pressing issues with water. Are, you know, are we running out? Do we need to be treating this as more of a very finite commodity? So there's definitely an awareness of sort of the value, the increasing value and the decreasing availability of water in some areas. So I think you can see there a growing appreciation for, well, perhaps we should stop with this idea that we can always get the water we think we want. And I think a second area where you can really see a growing awareness and a growing sensitivity to that sort of balance between expectation and limitation is in the increasing calls to do away with dams in the last 10 years or so. There have been numerous calls to dynamite and to destroy dams in the western half of the United States because they're um, drying up, the reservoirs are drying up anyway. Evaporation is always a problem at these dam sites. And if your reservoir isn't there, then why maintain these colossal structures that have genuine ecological drawbacks? They definitely change, usually in negative ways, the health of the rivers. And so you're seeing calls to release water out of dams in ways that mimic natural floods. Um, there were calls about this certainly at Hoover Dam. And you see calls to just destroy and remove dams entirely and return rivers to a more, quote, natural, although that term is subjective. It's, it's a socially and politically constructed term, natural, but to return rivers to a more natural, free-flowing state. So I do think you see a growing awareness. And definitely on the Brazos, there are still dam projects that are being debated that have been proposed and not been built. And they are facing a lot of public criticism. A lot of grassroots organizations have organized um, to speak out against the disadvantages of these large-scale development projects. The Friends of the Navasota, the Friends of the Brazos are two river-centric organizations that exist to protect the Brazos River. It's sort of like a, you know, keep the city beautiful movement. And so there is definitely, definitely a shift that has been going on and that we are definitely still seeing in the way that the American public views its rivers and their ability to be commodified and maybe the ethical sort of implications of commodifying rivers the way that we did for the last hundred to hundred and fifty years.
0: Okay, great. So normally I you know ask my presidents present present tense, excuse me, um questions towards the end, but I want to circle back to something that you said sort of at the beginning, which is how the Brazos River and how Texas in general has this kind of existence at the intersection of the South and the West. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, both the character of the actual river, the character of these projects, and also why that matters, why it's interesting to think about this intersection of the South and the West. Of course, historians and those who are listening who read a lot about history and you know, just exist in America, probably know that there's really different kind of environmental factors between those two regions, very different economic factors as well. But I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how bringing them together is valuable and interesting and insightful.
1: Okay, Um, that's a very good question. Really, it's a very good series of questions. So let me start not with why that's important, but how you see that play out on the Brazos. It's not just in the projects they proposed, although I'll get back to that idea because it's very important. But I have a chapter where I talk about cultural production along the Brazos River. Um, The songs, the paintings, the books, the folk tales, the the artwork that people have produced about the Brazos River and along the Brazos River. And you very clearly see in this cultural production sort of a wrestling with identity. There is a, a very, very, very prominent representation of the Brazos as South. You see paintings and folk tales and songs and etc. that depict the South um, and the Brazos as sort of the same cultural identity. You see the plantations and the slaves and the large, wide, winding rivers and the, the steamboats. And then you also have a very, very, very large amount of cultural production depicting the Brazos as a place of sort of western Western identity, um, where you have Lonesome Dove, for example, is set at least partly on the Brazos River. You have a series of Western novels that are featured on the Brazos River. Um, western country music stars like Lyle Lovett um, have sung about the Brazos River and certainly sort of um, photographs of the canyon lands, Palo Duro Canyon in particular, and sort of the vista of the West, you might say, has been very, very common. And so you see a very, very important amount of production. And that's significant because it really helps to explain the expectations that Texans and that some Americans more broadly have had for the Brazos. These paintings reveal what they want to see more often than not in the Brazos as it is remade, and so that idea of the Brazos as South represents the fact that for a long time, what people wanted from this river was a nice, flowing Mississippi-like river where they could insert their, you know, productive agricultural farmland into national markets where they could expand navigation and use it to benefit the regional economy. And you see in the West, in contrast, a place where aridity is a more dominating factor. And again, this is reflected in the project that people wanted for this particular section of the river. They want projects that will speak to the pressing need of farmers and ranchers and city folk who are experiencing water famine. And so I think there is definitely something significant there. As for the intersection of South and West, there are a lot of reasons why that's important. This is personal opinion here, but I wrote the book, so I'd like to think that there's like some legitimacy to what I'm about to say. Um, But I think part of why that intersection of South and West is important is that overlooking or downplaying that intersection is why so many projects have failed. You cannot piecemeal take the Brazos river and treat it only as a place of southernness, which is what they did for the first 60, 70 years with their improvement projects. They basically dissected the river and viewed it only along its lower reaches only as a place of southernness. but nature in quotation marks does not respect our arbitrary boundaries and political historians are familiar with this idea as well, right, that our geopolitical borders are sometimes very arbitrary, Mm -hmm. and and they don't necessarily reflect the geology, the environment, the landscape, or, or cultures. And so overlooking or minimizing or ignoring entirely the fact that the South and the West meet and commingle along the Brazos, Helps to explain, I think, the lack of success because you can't dissect the river. You need to do really what the people, you know, in, in charge started doing in the second half of the 1900s, um, which is look at the Brazos as a whole. Account for the fact that it is an ephemeral stream in, a, in its beginnings up near its, its, its source. And that becomes this mammoth but shallow and slow moving muddy river as it nears the Coast Coast. You have to account for those geological changes, as complex and as frustrating as they are, if you want to have any success at developing or managing this river. Now, that's ironic because the people who began to recognize this (laughs) are the same people proposing nuclear technology and (laughs) transnational diversion schemes. Um, But they definitely had the right idea. And to their credit, the Brazos River Authority which is the agency charged with managing this river. For the most part, they do very intentionally um, sort of account for the fact that this river is strikingly diverse in a cultural sense, in a social sense, and in a geological sense. I don't envy them their task, trying to reconcile all of that. And certainly the Brazos River has been complicit in sort of dam building schemes that, in fact, they built several of the dams on the river or at least proposed them. And they've been sort of complicit in some of these schemes that overlooked um, sort of the complexities of the river and its sort of southerness on the ending and the fact that agriculture was still the pressing issue there. But you are definitely seeing increasingly this awareness that you have to account for the many different faces. Um, you can't just arbitrarily cherry pick mm-hmm. <laughs> the cultural expectations of one section of the river and pretend like that is enough to devise um, a development scheme.
0: Right. So what do you see as the future of the Brazos River now that there's a little bit more recognition of that character, a little bit more recognition of the limitations of the technocracy? What's coming for it?
1: Oh, that is a very good question, and certainly the fate of the Brazos River um, has been a topic of public conversation, at, at least amongst environmentalists and Texans, since John Graves um, published his book "Goodbye to a River." That that book more certainly more than my book, um, and and more than almost anything, brought a lot of attention to the fate of the Brazos. I, if you read my book, you know I don't I don't believe Graves alone explains. Um, why the Brazos was saved from a lot of the development projects that were in the works. I think, in fact, fact, I know um, that a lot of them had already been set aside because they were proving impractical. But um, definitely for several decades now, you've seen this growing appreciation along the Brazos of its fate and sort of the ecological doom, um, you might say, that... Is promised if we develop it endlessly, and so there is a lot of talk in Texas. Uh, the Brazos is definitely suffering ecologically from some, some of the disadvantages of dam building. Um, there are a lot of studies, for example, at you, you know Baylor University at Texas A&M um, University about algae levels and the health of the wa- the watershed and the health of the various lakes that have been built. So that is certainly part of the future, what you might call um, remediation (laughs) and bringing um, a certain balance back to the river, um, its temperature, its um, pH levels, its aquatic life, and sort of restoring what has been changed somewhat over the last hundred years. There's also talk about figuring out what it means to restore the Brazos River. Um, are restoring it to what natural, you know, sort of meant 100 years ago? Or are we trying to figure out what a natural Brazos would have looked like 200 years ago? So there's definitely a lot of talk um, at the state level, at the regional level, about improving the overall health of the Brazos. So I see, I see a pretty good future. Um, I'm also a pessimist at this point. I, I was not once a pessimist. I'm now also a pessimist, however, um, because unfortunately, I I see a lot of the same talk in newspapers about we need to dam this, we need to channelize this, we're running out of water for our rice in the Pearlands, you know, sort of coastal area. I'm seeing a lot of rhetoric that I saw, because I looked at thousands of newspapers, that I saw in newspaper articles 50 years ago. And so in one sense, I'm seeing this cycle. Uh, sort of expectation and rhetoric that I've seen before, and, and that's discouraging. Um, but I, I'm i going to choose to believe that with the awareness of at least the disadvantages of development, that people will approach development mindfully. I'm not saying don't develop the process, right? You, you have to do what you need to do for the political, the social, the economic health of your cities and your population. But I am hopeful and I'm, I'm mostly hopeful, (laughs) Um, that the fate of the Brazos will largely be a positive one. That as we increasingly feel pressured um, by a growing population and pressured by insufficient water, that that they will not rush pell-mell, you know, furiously towards every project that is thrown our way, but that instead we will check our expectations. Um, with remembrance of what we've done (laughs) to the river in the past and awareness of the current state of the river because of what we've done.
0: Okay, great. So with a cautiously optimistic outlook for the future of the Brazos River, I was wondering if you might talk answer our kind of traditional final question here, since we've talked quite a bit about your book already, which is what's in the future for you? What are you working on right now? What are you planning to work on next? What's coming up? Well, I actually have two projects that are in the works. And
1: I say in the works loosely. <laughs> like many historians, I'm in the very, very early stages of my projects. But one project um, sticks with rivers and sticks with Texas. Um, And it looks at rural electrification and hydroelectric development along rivers in Texas. And I will almost certainly expand that um, regionally. I just I I found some things that complicated how where I wanted to take this regionally. Um, But basically, as I was working on this book, Unruly Waters, I realized that political infighting did a lot to delay um, development of the Brazos River and the Colorado Rivers because the logistics, the practicalities of uh, making power and selling power and transporting power led to a lot of infighting, a lot of political divisiveness. And so that's one project. I want to look at not just how hydroelectric generation further development, that's what people usually focus on, obviously. If you say, pe- to say to the public that, oh, I can pay for your dam for free, that's going to be something that encourages development. But I want to get past that and look at how development um, and the possibility of electrification um, really enhanced development projects, how it shaped um, the public as well, and really the social rhetoric around it. Um, two months ago, I would have had a much more solid um, answer to give you on that project, and I would have told you... Um, geographically, where I thought I was taking this as well, but as I said, it's it's more fluid now because of some things I found, but that's a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. It means I, I have some questions to pursue. And then the other topic um, that I'm pursuing is very, very different. And that is a history of keeping cool, I suppose you might say, and i um, this is something I'd been interested in for several years, and then i I sort of renewed um, the project after or doing a local interview on the subject. Um, But for right now, again, this is starting regionally um, just as a, you know, practicality um, since I'm situated in a city that has no meaningful airport and no (laughs) meaningful access to an interstate. Mm -hmm. Um, But what you see with efforts to keep cool, especially in the American West um, and Midwest is that they really begin with people adapting to their environment. So sod houses, Houses that are built directionally to take advantage of wind patterns. Houses that are built on the appropriate side of hills to catch um, certain angles of the sun and not others. Hanging uh, damp blankets over windows and doorways as a way of ventilating and cooling. Um, it's really up until the mid 1800s that you see, in, in in some ways and in some places, late 1800s that you see Americans keeping cool by adapting more to the environment than they adapt the environment to themselves. But with the sort of late 1800s industrial boom in the United States, really for the first time you see this commercialization of the idea that we can force the environment to keep us cool in the way that we see fit. And so I'm looking at pictures, um, sod houses. I am looking at advertisements of fans and other various um, tools for keeping cool. And I'm just really studying how the rhetoric and the social perception and sort of the American culture changed as we got away from this idea of we should adapt to where we have lived and move toward this idea of, well, we can force the environment to adapt to us. So basically, um, if you wanted to think of it this way, um, what made it possible for everyone to decide that, you know, Arizona and Florida was the place they wanted to retire? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, that would not be possible. Um, in a world without, you know, sort of this new idea of keeping cool. It's only in a world where you are forcing the environment, adapting it to your expectations of keeping cool. Again, technocratically, I I love that idea of technocracy. It's only in that world where you are bending the environment to technology that you can think, oh, retirement in Florida for a 90-year-old is great. Mm -hmm. Um, In the world before that, um, and I want to pair both, where we're more adapting to the environment, in the ways that we do that. So that's that's my other project. Again, early stages, um, because coming through pictures and advertisements is definitely time-consuming. But that's a fascinating study as well, looking at that transition and how westward migration, how industrialization, how urban growth, how sort of that post-war shift in industry all contributed to this change in thinking about the man nature relationship
0: well both of those sound really wonderful and thank you so much for joining us today and for telling us about your latest book and a little bit about your upcoming projects you're very welcome